Through his practice of Kabbalah mysticism, he has learned how to sense and perceive the pulse of life in creation. The crashing waves of the sea and breath of the forest has taught him the importance of inner silence. For Dr. Rothstein, OMT is more than pushing and palpating. He saw this exemplified in an old osteopath during his early exploration of medicine. Later on, he too would become a family medicine OMT doctor. He works on fostering inner calm, knowledge of human anatomy and physiology, and having a healing touch. He looks at the patient in front of him with utmost respect and care. He is a spiritual soul and a holistic healer. Enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine Podcast, where we share clinical stories and pearls related to osteopathic medicine. Today's guest is a graduate of Des Moines University College of Osteopathic Medicine in 1981. He finished his rotating internship at Hillcrest General Hospital in Flushing, New York in 1982, and from there went to the U.S. Army Medical Corps at the United States Army Institute for Infectious Diseases at Fort Detrick, Maryland until 1986. He is board certified in family practice, cranial osteopathy, as well as anti-aging medicine. He has owned his own private practice in Windward, Pennsylvania, an OMT practice for general health and the treatment of pain and chronic illness. He has been the medical director of the Age Diagnostic Laboratories. He's an inventor making the back exercise device called the Back Builder. He has also created Vitaben's website for the education and treatment of MTHFR deficiency or the methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase deficiency and formulated a supplement program specific for this disease. He has practiced OMT in Israel for a number of years, treating pain and ADHD there. He's also the author of the book called Brain Fog, published in April of 2005. He's presented on numerous topics such as Alzheimer's, the relationship of structure and function, chronic pain, and aging at both the national and international level. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Benjamin Rothstein. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to talk with us, share with us a little bit about your story, your journey to medicine and um, a career of healing. So yeah, thank you so much. Before we, before we jump into your journey, so the audience can get to know you, what are some of your hobbies, Dr. Rothstein, outside of medicine? Um, you know, I'm glad you asked that question because it's so important to have outside interest. I mean, you know this, but my, bike riding is my favorite. Bike riding and hiking. I love those because I just came back with a bike ride just now before coming on the podcast. I also... Um, I also love studying Kabbalistic mysticism. I teach that also. I like the mystical studies. I love and also like uh, working with young people and coaching and counseling young people. Um, and I have a lot of grandkids I play with. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I have, I have two questions to ask you. What, what kind of cyclist are you? Mountain biker, road cyclist, gravel cyclist? Road, road and gravel. Okay, very nice. Do you just do it for pleasure, or do you race as well, or uh, just for pleasure? Just exercise, nice. just for pleasure. And then I wanted to ask you about the mysticism. What What was the adjective that you used before it's, before it's you like said Kabbalah. mysticism? It's Kabbalah. It's called um, Kabbalah. 
Chassidut. It's a way of looking at the world beyond the physical impressions that your senses give you. And it's idea of, of spirit over form. Hmm. And, cool. and why is this so important to you? And does it enhance, I don't know, your, we talk about mind, body, spirit in osteopathic medicine. Does that enhance that spiritual side of your osteopathic treatment, I guess? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Understanding that, that, that there's a soul to everything. Everybody is in their own soul. We all have, we're all common souls in a certain way. We all have a common connection to the creator. We all, and every living thing has an energy to it. You know, there's something called the pulse of life. And um, you can feel it in the tree. You can feel it by the ocean. The really cool thing, you know, the ocean, the tide to the ocean, really the pulse of the earth. And you can feel that when you're sensitized to it. You can feel the pulse of the soul. We feel the, the cranial rhythm, but really it's the soul pulsing in a certain way to the body. And there's ways of connecting to the creator through observance of, commandments or observance of his, of his um, ideals and values, there's um, it's sensitivity to the spiritual aspect of life. You can feel it in everywhere. You can see it everywhere. Sense it in people, in plants, animals, the world, tide. And so there, there's a sense of the sensitivity. And the, the great osteopaths really were very, very spiritual men and women. They're very spiritually oriented. Had a very strong sense of, of God's presence in the world, which, which enabled them to feel a pulse no one else could feel. The cranial rhythm, they could feel a pulse of life, even the breath. You can feel it in the body when you're sensitized to, you know, there's a divine presence. And it's everywhere. And so when you get into that kind of study and how everything matters and everything relates and everything is an opportunity to elevate it, and you have an, op you know, an option to bring things up or bring things down. Become more spirit, more attuned with godliness or less attuned with godliness. It's your, it's your choice. Take your pick. And it gives, you, it gives you a sense of how to do that and where it comes from. So that's what it's at. And it, it's, it's a really um, fascinating study. Can, can this sensitivity to this pulse or this spirit the soul in all, in all of creation, can that be learned by people? Oh yeah, for sure, absolutely. And and how so? How can that be learned? Well, that that's one thing I love teaching. Sensitivity to the pulse of life, to the sense that stuff. You can, you know, you can go to the ocean, by the beach, feel the tides, and the tides are the pulse of the earth. So the tides coming in and going out to the slow pulse of the earth. You can, sensitize, you can sensitize yourself and feel the tree expanding, contracting, a pulse of the tree. You can actually, you know, I, I saw this, but, um, but Andrew Taylor still would take a bone. You can feel the bone moves this way, moves that way. An old bone. And you can still, you can sensitize yourself. It's a real living matter. Matter always has a pattern it follows. You can feel the pattern in, the, in even in old dried bones. Um, everything alive, everything that was alive has something special to it. And it, it's, it, anyone can learn that. You can learn it. I mean, some people learn better than anything else, like learning piano. There's people who play, you know, Tinkle, Tinkle Little Store and those who are contra pianists. But you can really learn to play piano uh, to some degree or another if you try hard enough. And this also, some people have a gift. They feel it very easily. Others have to work harder feeling it. 
but it's there. And um, the great osteopaths listen with their hands. They see with their heart. Perceive with their mind's eye. Something way beyond just the physical palpatory skills of pushing and sensing things. The sensitivity you can develop. You can, do, you can actually develop this and perceive things that others find. How'd you know that? How'd you do that? Um, it's, it's incredible. You get that feeling when you finally get that feel, the feel, the pulse of life. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you, do you think that, you know, our culture, at least the Western culture, we all walk around with our iPhones, you know, we're constantly on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, buying things on Amazon. We're, our attention is, I don't know if divided is the right word, but you know, we're constantly scrolling through social media and news. And is that, does that make it more difficult to have, it almost seems like this, almost like this Zen moment where you're very much in living in the present moment, not thinking about anything else in order to sense this pulse, I guess, you know, let's say you're treating a patient to really feel that cranial rhythm or the pulse that you're talking about of all living creatures, how important is it to, to have that present moment presence, if you will? Yeah. Um, my question is the question, like, what do you think? <laughs> I think it's vitally important. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It is. I'll tell you what you can do. I say, and I do this every, I try to do this at least once a week. Go into the forest, you can find a forest someplace, a quiet place, without the surrounding noises of streets and cars and trucks and so forth. And you go into the forest, or by the be someplace in nature, and you close your eyes, and you count on your fingers, just breathe, you count 60 seconds of total stillness, just for 60 seconds. And then open your eyes and see what you see. 60 seconds of stillness and watch what happens to your sensitivities, to your perceptions. It's, it's, it's something, it, it's hard to explain the freedom of, of what happens when you do that. But just do it, try it. Go someplace, it's quiet. I like going to the forest. Some people like deserts, some people like the ocean, some people like a quiet room, hard to find quiet rooms, you can find the quiet room, turn your phones off, nothing around you, no interference, and just be totally quiet for at least 60 seconds with your eyes closed and then see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned that this whole this thing is a plethora of, of interference with our lives with phones and computers and this and that and everything else. You know, there's a thing called Shabbos or the Sabbath. Everything goes off. No phones, no cell phones, no cars, no lights. Just, you just, I mean, no turning switches. Just, just be totally at peace. Nothing. Just chilling for a whole 24 hours. Yeah. And see what that does to your soul. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I can, I can imagine. I can relate to that. When I, I was actually, before I went 
um, into medicine, I was actually studying to become a Catholic priest. And we had spiritual exercises from the teachings of St. Ignatius of Loyola, where we would have eight days of silence. You wouldn't speak. We had no phones. You wouldn't read anything that was not spiritual. You wouldn't talk to anybody except your spiritual director for eight full days. And the amount of introspection was incredible. And just insight into who you were as a person, your character, your vices, your virtues was, was pretty, was very insightful. And it almost at the end of eight days was, you almost didn't want to talk. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happens. Um, eight days. I mean, I don't think it do eight days, but one minute at a time. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And it's true. It's true. Silence is so to cultivate silence, such a powerful force, silence, we're talking craniosophy, but the still point where you bring the body to total stillness and everything's at a focal point and the total absolute inner silence, quieting all that stuff. And it takes time. It's not easy to come to inner silence. When you decide eight days of silence, how long did it take for you to feel like all the noise and clatter calm down in your yeah. brain? <laughs> I was just thinking about that. You know, it took, oh, probably until <clears throat> end of day two, beginning of day three. It took a few days for me. Yeah. I don't know what other people's experience were, but it took me a few days. Right. So, yeah, well, interesting. I would love to talk to uh, talk more about that, but we should probably move on. Um, I usually ask people in the introduction about a, a book recommendation that you may have. There's a lot of interesting books um, I tend to, I tend to lean towards, you know, spirituality than materiality. A great book by Simon Jacobson called Towards a Meaningful Life. Uh, it's, it's a really good book. And, and what's that about? Book, it, it's just about getting perspective what life's about. I see. Um, and there, there's also, it's also more of a Kabbalistic kind of approach to it or a mystical um, approach. There's um, books, some of the old texts, I found tremendous amount of, of insight. And it was, it, was, it was really pretty wild. The old books, you know, like, like the thinkers, old thinkers. Um, where's the book? The book by Dr. Still, Osteopathy, Research and Practice by Dr. Still. It's an old, old book. I got a book and it's dated from, I think, 18-something. Yes, 1800. Oh, no, this one's 1910. It's more in the more recent book. Hmm. And it, 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 the way they thought and wrote and thought back in those days. Fulford, Robert Fulford, what the, what the book of the touch of, Fulford's Touch of Life, a phenomenal book, phenomenal way of thinking and looking at things. Yeah, very much related to what you were talking about of all creatures having this this pulse, this beat of life almost. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Okay. What about a documentary or movie recommendation? Would you have any? Mm, 
I had to talk one. I don't really think I have any in particular one that I can come with. And you gave me earlier thing. I couldn't think of one that I would say that, wow, that was a great documentary. <laughs> um, That's okay. Because often the documentary, the problem with documentaries, that they make, they'd be very good, but they, they can get become a little hyper, a little hyperbole in them. They get a little bit more, a little too, too romantic, a little too carried away. <laughs> yeah. There was, there was a one called, which, which is really a, a, a tremendous eye-opener, which is really controversial, super controversial one called Vaxxed, V-A-X-X-E-D, mm-hmm. which someone, patient gave me that one to look into, you know, what's sort of a vac- you know, the whole vaccine controversy, there's some good, bad, whatever it is, and they give me an idea, a different perspective in that. And that was, that was pretty my, uh, eye-opening um, yeah. for a documentary. Um, Okay. It, it, it gives you an idea of that there's the good and the bad, you know. Sure. In medicine, we have we have these incredible, dedicated, incredible, wonderful human beings, and you have the other kind of people. You know, it's like, and um, it kind of shows the dark side, and it's a little bit, mm. you know, um, it's so controversial. But I like controversial stuff because controversy means for some, uh, something to think about. When the yeah, group is irrelevant, but, have, but you don't, if, if always people that agree with everything you say, you don't grow very much. I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah, until, until you really challenge your ideas, I guess you don't know what you don't know until someone challenges you. And I mean, that's how Socrates, way back in the Greek days, learned was through Socratic dialogue. Right. And so, yeah, absolutely. And so well, I recommend look at the, read things that you disagree with. Yeah. Listen to what they disagree with. Yeah. I mean, like Jordan Peterson, you know, you agree with, like him, don't like him, I don't care, but he's, he thinks, he has good points, mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. And challenge your thoughts, challenge everything you got. I tell my kids and tell my students, challenge everything, everything. Yeah. But I can't justify it. I shouldn't be doing it. Just ask questions and really get into it. So anyway, that's, that's kind of stuff I look at. I like looking at things that go against my, my nature. Yeah, I think that's, that's very brave of you because it's much easier to stay in your comfort zone and talk to people who agree with you, with everything that you say. Um, it kind of can easily ruffle the feathers and shake the boat when you talk to people who don't necessarily agree or believe in what you say, but yeah, what a great opportunity to, to grow, learn more, see a different perspective. Yeah. You might be wrong. You might be wrong. Yeah. Think about something you never, I never thought of that. Oh, wow. That's a good idea. And then you challenge it, get back to resources, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And there one idea, one thing that can cause you to do some serious research and thinking mm-hmm. and you may confirm what you knew to be true, felt to be true and you find it more true or find it's less true and you just follow the truth. Yeah, just keep looking and listening and listening. Yeah, it takes so much work and effort. But, yeah, but it's uh, life. But it's life, man. That that's that's <laughs> what moves you through life. Otherwise, you have no character development. You stay I, flat. I agree. I absolutely yeah. agree. You know, the book "Man's Search for Meaning" is another great, Victor, great book. Victor but, Frankel. Yeah, yeah. Victor Frankel. That is like a must-read for every human being. I agree. Yeah. Here's a guy who came through, through came out of the, the, the depths of hell. It was, it was, it's hard to imagine what was going on in, in those concentration camps. But, and what, 
what happens to a person when faced with the ultimate challenge, the ultimate test? What kind of a person are you? What kind of man are you? What kind of, what kind of, you, do, you, do, you, do you fall prey to, the, to, to sadness, depression, anger, and rage? Or you step up to the plate and say, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to be, I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be loving. What kind of person are you? And, and he, he, the book challenges you to the core. What kind of person are you? Yeah, no, absolutely. Must read. I've read it twice. And yeah, yeah we'll definitely read it again. So let's, uh, let's jump into a little bit your journey to medical school. How, how did you initially become interested in, in medicine and becoming a physician? And an osteopathic physician. Well, becoming a doctor, I was a little kid. I was six years old. And uncle was, was an obstetrician gynecologist. And I wonder where babies come from. And they, no one would tell me. I said, I'll become a doctor. I'll know, and then I'll find out where babies come from. <laughs> and six years old. <laughs> hmm. And that became, that became like my thing. I'm going to become a doctor. I'm going to become a doctor. You know, yes, cute. Anyway. Um, but when I was in the undergraduate school, looking at different options in medicine, the medicine medical school at that time, was so intensely competitive. It, it's mind-boggling how competitive it was, medical school. Getting in, people were, you know, were scudding other people's reports and, 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 and trying to, you know, um, step on others to get up. It was, the competition was cutthroat. It was, it was horrible. So I was looking around, and I was looking for different options of what's in medicine, what's available, what's going on in the medical world. And I saw this little, little teeny sign on the bill, bill, uh, billboard, bulletin board, at, um, in, at, I went to college. University of Maryland, Baltimore County campus. And, and so an osteopathic physician, said, what's this? Went to visit the guy, his old name, Dr. Bertram Waskey. Went to visit him and watch him. And we talked on the phone a couple of times and what's going on, what's it about? Then went to visit his practice a couple of times. What's he doing? I said, you mean you're treating people and they get better not using medications in the surgery? How's that possible? Because I was, you know, I was, you know, I was, Definitely going to get go, go, a regular MD doctor and, you know, country doctor and do this and that, all kind of stuff. And had all these plans. And he showed me. And I, I kept, well, I said, this is, a, I said, I check, went checking other doctors out, other DOs around. And this is a consistent pattern here. You get people well, but using your hands. And it's like blew my, blew my mind. Hmm. Went to a conference, went more. I kept looking. I said, this stuff is just wild. So I applied to MD and DO schools. I accepted the both. I chose a DO school. My family thought I was nuts because we were talking back in, I graduated high, uh, college in 77. So they thought I was out of my mind because no one heard of osteopathy. And so, um, but I went, I, I chose that school because it just offered me the opportunity to really heal patients. So it what was, I did- It was the example that you were working with, seeing him- non-pharmacologically and with his hands that really why did that why did that resonate with you so much because it worked and what was he treat what was the physician treating he or she he was treating i don't know all kind of stuff back pain of course back pains and neck pains and allergies and arthritis and mm -hmm. fatigue and i don't know that all kinds of stuff is treating just general practice kind of stuff he had a strictly OMT practice. And he was an old timer. I mean, it was, it was, we're talking back in the 70s. 
and he was already an old timer back then. So he, you know, he he was in the transition uh, when Diaz became licensed to practice medicine. Um, and so, uh, he did things just by using his hands. And patients were getting better immediately because, and I asked that because a lot of times what I've seen with OMT is the patients oftentimes will feel more sore for 42, 70, 48 to 72 hours post-treatment, you know, almost like they did a tough workout and then gradually the body starts to feel a little bit better. Well, I'll tell you, there's, there's something called the art of healing, which is the thing I crave to teach the most, the art of healing. You see, when you treat somebody properly, they, don't, they shouldn't get that kind. And once I get a treatment reaction, every so often even I get a treatment reaction, they feel, they feel like yucky for a day or two until they finally recuperate and then they get much better. Yeah. But as a rule, properly guided treatment People come out usually feeling pretty euphoric or feeling just feeling like great and feeling normal. Immediately. Yeah, as a rule. That's always the case, and not always, not always, you know, but as a rule, they do. There's always some people that are very chronic or have other issues. They have to know the limitations of what OMT can do when it can't do. Because sometimes their pain is not a structural pain, like a back pain. This is a little mind blowing thing. This is the art of medicine. Here's the art comes in. Person is back. Why get his back pain? Well, he got very stressed out. Something happened. I don't know what was going on. Stressed out, and goes to his back. And his back pain from the tension. Why did that happen? When you study the anatomy, the physiology, and the embryology, look at it. If you realize that you know intestinal pain goes to the back, intestinal cramping goes to the back, and you look in the biochemistry, you realize the intestines. What makes the bowels move? What causes the, the mass of the bowels and, 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 um, um, uh, not mass movement in the bowels, peristalsis. Yeah. Peristalsis what causes the peristalsis? There's a nerve, the neurotransmitter that causes peristalsis. It's called 5-HT, 5-hydroxytryptophan, which is the exact same chemical in the brain, which we call serotonin. But most people don't realize is that 80% of serotonin in the body is produced in the bowels, not the brain. When the brain feels stressed, it needs more serotonin to calm itself down. The brain can always produce that amount. What it does is the bowels start to contract to produce serotonin. That cramping pain, you have to go to the bathroom all of a sudden. You know what I'm talking about? That, that oh, I got in the bathroom. My belly aches. Oh, I'm stressed. My belly hurts. That's the bowels contracting to produce serotonin to calm down the mind. You get a, if you've got a back pain that's stress-induced, if you don't address the bowel issue, the back pain is not going to get any better. That's interesting that you say that. So you're saying, <laughs> this happened to me all the time, and maybe there's a little too much information, but every test in medical school, I would always have to go to the bathroom before the test, have right. a bowel movement before the test. I was so nervous and stressed. So... Kind of what you're saying is my my GI tract was producing, was contracting, peristalsing, producing serotonin to calm me down. Yep. Work too, doesn't it? Huh. I think it helped a little bit. Yeah. Listen, everyone, if once a person has a good bowel movement, how do you feel after a good bowel movement? Oh, how do you feel? Great. 
Ah, oh, feels great. And that's a normal human response. Hmm. It's a normal human response. You feel relief and you feel, oh, after a healthy bowel movement. That's because of the release of serotonin or 5-HT, 5-hydroxytryptophan. That's fascinating. Yeah, I, I, I do remember reading that, but yeah, that's... that's See, th- in medicine, if medicine typically teaches you to think by, not to think, but to follow the algorithms. But in the art of healing, you think, what's the body going through? What's, what's, what's the biochemistry? What's really going on here? Vitamins are cofactors in the Krebs cycle. It's like, oh, really? Yeah. Vitamins help the Krebs. So you got to look at the osteopathic approach to look in the big picture. Structure and function, yeah. where structure and function relationships work and they don't work. They don't always work, but a lot of times they do work. And sometimes you hit a release point on the back, release the tension in the bowels, and the whole body feels more relaxed and more calm. Yeah. And so you were seeing this physician that you were working with as an undergraduate treat these patients. They're getting relief pretty immediate. And you're thinking to yourself, this is, this is pretty fascinating. I want to go to osteopathic medical school. Right. And you get into Des Moines University, one of the, uh, the premier osteopathic medical schools. And, and what was it like, you know, that first OMT lab that you went to the um, osteopathic principles and practice lecture series? How was, how was your experience th- there? Um, well, they start with a, a, a didactic stuff and talk about anatomy and correlations and structure of function relationships and compensatory strain patterns. Dr. Gordon Zink was the, was the, was the DO there at the time, him and Bud, Bud Teaport. And there were two great, great minds at the time of really understanding osteopathy. And they really, uh, and they, they, I was looking for it. For, I was looking for it. And so I really, really glommed on to it. But what I did was, as soon as I realized I could do this, I went to Dr. T. Porton, the OMT, you know, guru there. And I, I watching him work every day for two hours, every day for two solid years. I just sat there and watched. I want to see where's the magic? What's the magic? You can't get magic by but in and out real quick. You got to spend time thinking and watching and watching and feeling and looking and thinking and sensing and listening over and over and over and over again. I did it for two hours every and day. You used the word years. magic because you, you didn't understand what he was doing. Yeah. And it is, it looks like magic. It looks like there's a magic. There's a, the great. You, you hear that all the time from physicians and patients. Oh, go to these OMT doctors and let them work their magic. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think it's, it's not magic. It's, in my sure. mind, it's knowledge of anatomy, physiology. It's being sensitive. Um, let, me, let me tell you a story. Let me story. tell you a story. A patient came to me many years ago, and um, mother brought this boy, the young kid, I mean, 12, 13 years old. And the kid was a basket case. He was already smoking, and he was drinking, getting into fights, and he was getting... And he kicked school and problem this thing and that thing. And he, he was flunking at school. He was just an absolute basket case. His mother was, was obese and she was a heavy smoker. His father was kicked out of the house because he, he was an alcoholic, he was a drunk. He used to beat up him, beat up his, his mother. And, and, he was, and he just came from a dysfunctional family. He himself was a basket case. It was just, it was just a total wreck. And he said, want me to fix the child. He has ADHD. I said, I, I, I 
can't do miracles. I mean, really? I said, no. And she said, I know you can do it. I know for sure you can do it. I heard about you. You can do it. For sure you can do this. You can, you can only person who can help my, fix my son. She's begging me to fix her son. I said, all right, I'll try. I'll try. And I'm like, I said, I don't know how to do this. This is, this is like insane. So anyway, I saw the kid. Took a little history. Turns out, I looked at, checked him out. I said, what happened to his head and neck? You feel attention. I said, well, it turns out his father, when he was three years old, kicked him down the stairs in the basement stairs, kicked him, and bum, 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 down the stairs. I said, I, hmm. So I started working the kid, made a few dietary changes, got a few vitamins, and working his head and neck and body and, and structural work, 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 work. And after about three weeks or so, comes back, I would see the kid once a week, and come back, he comes back with a note from the teacher that says, what medication is this child on? It's a different child. He stopped getting into fights. He was pleasant. He was happy. Cooperative at home. Stopped smoking. Stopped drinking. Attentive. Like a, a different child. Now, as far as I'm concerned, well, this, 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 and this, but that's, that's like, imagine a mother, because a single, now a single mother, because the father of that child is a drunk, you know, is a violent drunk, and, and all of a sudden becomes a sweet child who's cooperative and pleasant and does well in school with a matter of three weeks. What would you call that? A miracle. <laughs> and okay, we know the structure from relationships, but to a person's looking at that, woo. Sure. You know, I know, it's interesting. So now I have to ask you, what, what do you think it was? What? Well, I mean, clearly there were several factors going on. Um, first of all, him being in contact with a man who's gentle, he felt safe around. And then treating him, reason attention on the neck and back. You know, kids have ADHD. There's different kinds of ADHD. It's just a wastebasket term, but it doesn't really, it's not really a diagnosis. It's a description. And ADHD really, if the child is able to stay focused on something of great interest for protracted periods of time, and I'll say it again, if a child is able to stay focused on something of interest for protracted periods of time, but otherwise is all over the place and can't stay focused, that child usually has a problem at his neck at the atlas occiput junction. Almost always it's a suboccipital tension is causing the problem. Release the tension in the subocciput, head relaxes, the body relaxes, the mind clears, you can now focus. I've done this hundreds if not thousands of times. Hundreds and hundreds of times I've done this with kids. And once you lose attention in their head, they can start feeling more relaxed. Ah, <sighs> you breathe. They can sleep. So if you can't, if you're in too much pain, you can't sleep because kids are agitated. They're so uncomfortable. They can't sleep. Well, then the next day, how do you feel when you're tired, especially if you're a child? You can't function. You get in the fights. You get agitated, irritable. You can't focus. It's, it's awful. So once they release attention in the body and balance it, he's now could sleep. You know, I could think. His mind is more clear. The head was no longer cramped up and jammed into his neck. All of a sudden, he can start to become a normal person. So now he's a safe environment. He's out of pain. He's grateful as great as can be. And I give him some, get some junk out of his system. Get change his diet. Get the sugar. Sugar is a killer. Got the sugar out of his system. Get, get him off of sodas and cokes. Even just for a couple of days, he could see a change already. And he cooperated. I don't know why, but he did, thank God. And gave him some healthy food to eat. And he was just a different kid. It's just because it, it's how, that's how the system works. 
But you think like maybe the root cause was the drunken father kicking him down the stairs, his head bouncing off each step, causing that um, I suboccipital well, tension. Yeah, I think that was a major cause. Yeah. Also dysfunctional parenting. I mean, yeah. there's not, nothing left to be said. You come into the office and actually this applies more to men than to women, believe it or not. Just, just reality. In the presence of a man who's calm and loving, kids feel very safe. They like that sensation. A man who's calm, safe, in a loving fashion, knows how to touch properly. When I teach students, when I was at the, the convocation we were at, and I was doing table training at, at the, in the evenings, I spend a lot of time teaching the students just how to touch a person. How do you touch somebody to put them at ease immediately. How, what's, what's a really healing touch feel like? Funny, I was registering, registering at, the, at, at the convocation and uh, there was a guy there, um, I forgot his name, about my age group. And um, he told him to put his hand on top of my hand for something. I said, whoa, you've got the touch. <laughs> the way he touched says now that's that's this is the man who knows how to heal and sure enough he's one of the you know he's a quite a master omt hmm, interesting and i forgot his name though bad with names <laughs> but anyway but, but anyway there's a touch there's a way to touch somebody you touch them they know they're safe they're calming and they just relax and it's instant it takes a moment and you see it all the time is that something again that can be learned and how Absolutely. do you learn that it's easy to learn. I can teach it to you in, in may take half an hour. And you have the touch forever. And the patients know they're in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing. What are some of the principles of, of how you teach that osteopathic touch or that healing touch? Well, you want to be calm inside yourself. When you touch somebody, you're touching, touching one of God's creatures. God's creatures. You're touching something holy. And you put your hand on them, it's a full hand contact, your hand is relaxed. So it molds to the body instantly. Not poking and jabbing, it's a total, total contact. It's gentle, but firm. And it molds to the body with total respect. This is one of God's creations. And you're in, this, in your space where this is a person, someone you have to have a sense of, of love for, and a sense of, of respect just because it's one of God's creations. And if you can hold that space, even just for a few seconds, you're, you're accomplishing a, a healing touch. And, and this healing touch that you're talking about now, is that going back to your, your two hour a day lesson with this OMM goo, is that, did you witness that touch with, with them? Um, Back in med school, I I don't know what I witnessed because it was a long it was over time. I watched how he approached patients and how he I did see the touch because he would be very forceful but gentle at the exact same time. But I didn't. It took a while to understand what was going on. Hmm. You know, and I, I saw how he think, how he move, how bodies would move, and how they would be plastic and they're and they're elastic and they're and they're. Uh, and they just 
they might as relax and feel grateful for that touch and that movement and that articulation. We, these guys are crunchers, you know. These guys were the high-velocity guys from the old-timers. <laughs> Crack, now we're at the treatment. You know, these guys were like big crunchers, but they were so gentle and strong at the same time. And, and so throughout this time, you were still, you're still fascinated by OMT. Throughout your medical school training, were you treating fellow med students? I treated practically every person in, that, in, that, in, that, in the building, in the school. <laughs> Staff, students, teachers, aide, everyone. I, treated, I was treating everybody. I was treating everybody I could get my hands on. Had a little practice going basically in after school and we'll come and have my tables up. I'd treat this one, treat that one, treat, line them up, treating people over and over and over again. And it's going to take a long time. It takes a while. You know, what I can do now in, in, in 15 minutes would take me an hour or two hours to do it back in those days. It takes time to, to get the feel for it. It takes time to get the, develop the instinct, where to, where, how the body moves, and how to put things in certain positions, find the patterns. Um, it takes, takes a while. I mean, do a counter strain now it may take me a moment to find the point and position it. But then it would take me half an hour. <laughs> sure. Okay. And so you're treating, you're treating your fellow classmates. What about during the clinical years? Were you using OMT on your different rotations, pediatrics, general surgery, internal medicine? Every chance I got. The nurses loved it. In the hospitals, nurses, hey, doctor, why don't you give me a favor? Nurses loved it. The patients would do it with my patients. I'll tell you one time, I got in trouble one time. This is a, it's a fascinating story. Um, and I was, uh, I, I was on a military uh, scholarship. So I would do a rotation at a military hospital in Tacoma, Washington called Fort Lewis. And uh, I was on cardiology rotation. And there was a guy there with COPD and he was an oxygen and he couldn't move and he was horrible, looked miserable. And he's like, he just, he was this, he wasn't that old, but he's like on deathbed. He looked awful making rounds of guys into his lungs and medication, da, 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 da. And afterwards, you know, I'm walking, everyone leaves, I'm hanging out, can no place else to go, and walking off. I'm like, let's see, try a little OMT on this guy, see what happens with him. So I walk over to the guy and I said, hey, mind if I do some treatment? I said, sure, go ahead, doctor, sure. And he, just, he could barely breathe. When he did breathe, his, <sighs> you know, the COP, COPD, emphysema kind of breathing, puffer, in a real puffer. And so I did some work, just gentle myofascial release work and rib raising and little this, little that on his body. And so um, the next morning we're making rounds and um, see this guy, the day before he was bedridden, on oxygen, just looking awful. He gets jumps out of bed, not, no oxygen. And he looks at him and says, that young guy did more for me than all you doctors put together. You know, yo, he did nothing. He did something for you. All you better, all you guys put together. He was like ranting and raging. He was happy and, and upset at the same time. Because you know, all this time he was feeling so bad. And after one treatment, he felt so good. Hmm. And um, the people, the students were, whoa, what did you do? What was fascinating about that was the resident, was the intern, was, was over, I mean, his resident, whoever was in charge was furious. Hmm. How dare you treat my patients? Furious, not curious, furious, and that's a you want to risk. You got to be very careful. A lot of that's not so bad now. It's a lot, a lot better now. Back, we're talking back. Once again, we're talking back in the um, late seventies, early uh, yeah, seventy nine, eighty, and so we're talking back. It was different now. It was a long time ago. 
but still, there's still a bias. And, and rather than saying, what do you do? They say, how do you do it? How dare you do that? Interesting. And, and what was it that you found? You just found some, some inhaled, inhaled rib cage. You just got the ribs moving better. Release the, ribs, the diaphragm. Exactly. Diaphragm release, little rib raising, a little first rib, thoracic outlet kind of stuff, a little cervical release. Um, take care of the SI joints and let the sacrum float. It's like it to do. It wasn't that much, but it yeah. worked. Yeah, that's cool. That's a neat story. So you come to the end of medical school. If O&MM had been a residency choice at that time, would you have gone that route or would you still have gone family medicine? Well, I always want to be a family doctor. It's always my thing to be a family doctor. But I knew I had this gift in OMM. Because um, I, I was in the military scholarship, I couldn't take the extra year to do a, a fellowship, which I wish I had done that. It would have been a very smart move on my part. But I was a, on, in military time. I couldn't take the time off. Um, wish I had done that. Definitely, definitely, definitely have done that. No question I would have done that. But, you know, family practice has a value to it because once you're in the family practice world, you can have patients you couldn't have any other way. I could have inroads I would not have had any other way had it just been a strict OMT practice. So I have no regrets about doing family medicine. Um, it helped me in many ways. And it was, it was great. I helped a lot of patients in many different scenarios. People came, people come with problems where they come to the family doctor for. And I said, well, we can... Treat it or I give you drugs. And most folks say treat it. Some people want drugs, but most of them want to get treated, get it fixed. It didn't take long for rotation people coming just for the OMT. They did this problem, that problem, and that just would fix them. And uh, it, it became a mainstay in my practice just because. But I'll tell you, one, tell you one thing that I'm going to tell you very important. OMT can be magical. It's wonderful. It'd be great. It's nothing better than that. Don't stay in that box because other parts to it, other parts to healing, like nutrition. And when I, you know, I first learned about, I go, I'm telling you, know, don't think now, back in those days, doctors were not allowed to learn about nutrition. We're not allowed to talk about diet and vitamins. We're not allowed to get punished for doing that. That's how it was back then. It's different now. But 40 years ago, it was, it was very harsh. And doctors may think, and some may think vitamins never prescribe vitamins for a patient. We never prescribe vitamins for a patient. God forbid. But themselves, they would take it. So, um, but I learned about nutrition because my patients would get well. They wouldn't stay well. I looked for other things, how to keep a patient to stay well. And so I got a little nutrition, a little diet, vitamins. You add other things to your, to, to your mixture, to your, to your stew. And they get the response rate was, was exceptionally high. Vitamins, any specific vitamins that you have in mind for certain disease processes? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one that, that is neglected horrifically, and that is magnesium. Every diabetic, this, you look, once you can look at pathophysiology, when a kidney becomes diabetic, a diabetic kidney is not like normal kidneys anymore, they change because of the high amount of glucose going through them. And when they excrete the extra sugar, magnesium goes out and begins to leak, leak magnesium to the kidneys. Every diabetic, listen carefully, every diabetic, type one or type two, it does not matter, 
every diabetic by definition is low on magnesium. And magnesium deficiency associated with, with diabetes is, is a major cause of the problems of diabetes. Right? Because all diabetics will get one of seven things. All diabetics are going to have either a stroke, a heart attack, renal failure, uh, blindness, vascular disease, peripheral neuropathy, um, uh, hypertension. All going to get something. They all get something. But if given magnesium, the likelihood is, is reduced and they don't get as sick. And it helps them tremendously. So oftentimes I see physicians and I do this myself for muscle stiffness. Um, should, should check, do you check the, the magnesium levels usually? Yeah, yeah the problem is you can check it. The problem with magnesium levels, if the serum levels, don't forget serum has to remain in homeostatic um, state. So you're going to have um, cells will, um, to the detriment, excrete minerals to maintain homeostasis in the blood, calcium, magnesium, um, uh, potassium. So by the time you find it in, the, in abnormality in the serum, your, your cells are severely deficient, severely. So if it's a little low in the, in the blood, it's really low intracellularly. So it's like finding way downstream. You, you can do a um, cell... Red RBC minerals, they can get it. Now, a lot of labs do this now. They didn't have it always, but now they, I find that a lot of labs are doing it. RBC levels for potassium, uh, magnesium, uh, calcium. Um, not iodine yet. Yeah. Anyway, you can find it. They have them. Yeah. And that's a good test. Yeah, but if I, if I finish my thought then, so some OMT doctors, including myself, would prescribe like magnesium citrate, 200 milligrams for someone with very intense muscle stiffness, muscle tension, commonly find it in the upper trapezius muscle where people hold, seem to hold a lot of their stress. Start out with 200 milligrams, talk to them about the side effects of possible diarrhea. And it's something that I've just, I've just started um, prescribing and so the, the jury's still out if patients are getting benefit from this, but I see it as a very common practice. Well, yeah, and by the way, magnesium glycinate is better than, than magnesium citrate. Magnesium is very, very important because magnesium deficiency, what happens, especially trapezius pain, is usually referred pain from the TMJ. And people clench their teeth and grind their teeth when, they have low, when they're deficient in magnesium. So giving magnesium, you relax in the jaw, it's automatically the trapezius muscle is going to relax. And um, you can give magnesium, keep, try, keep going up to get diarrhea, and then back down a little bit. But 400 milligrams, 800, 1,000, whatever it takes, give the magnesium. It's very, very good, a good, great idea. It really works. They do it all the time, people. Yeah. I want to ask your, your opinion about this or your thoughts about this. I had a patient the other day with a history of fibromyalgia. She was a 67-year-old female. And she said, Dr. Green, my, I think it was her rheumatologist said, I'd like you to take 50,000 IUs of vitamin D3. Was it every, it was every few weeks. And she mm -hmm. said, my body 
feels great when my vitamin D levels are normal. And I start to feel more pain as my vitamin D levels go below normal. Have you ever heard anything about that before or read anything? Of course. Of course. She's right. Vitamin D is very important. Vitamin D is not just about bone density. It's about body chemistry. Vitamin D is actually, you know, vitamin D is a hormone, right? By definition, it's a hormone. Mm -hmm. um, and because it produces one area and it affects another area because by definition, it's a hormone. But vitamin D is incredibly important. Take 50,000 units once a week. Great way. It's very helpful. I think about 5,000 a day, personally. And it stabilizes, occurs calcium um, metabolism and also good for the brain. It affects almost every part of the body, vitamin D. Mm. But vitamin D without magnesium will not be effective. Yeah. And you know, why is that? It's just magnesium is a cofactor in vitamin D metabolism and, 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 and activity. I see. And a person has a distorted bowel, uh, or bowel dysfunction where the, the microbiome is off, not enough vitamin K, so you need vitamin K along with vitamin D and magnesium. I see. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch gears here just a little bit and go back to, to OMT. So I've heard a lot of stories from you about how OMT has worked for certain patients. Have there been times in your private practice or throughout your medical career when OMT didn't work for a patient? And if so, why do you think that is? Oh, sure. Of course, at times I'm not indicated. A person that has pain that's not resolved with OMT, um, it could be cancer. It could be a severely herniated disc. Um, it could be that something else bothered them. It's not about structure at all. It could be an emotional issue. Emotional, people with emotional pain, like they just don't get well. It's just it's horrible. It's just it's, it's a shame. It, emotionally get better, worse, better, worse, better, where it doesn't stick because emotional pain, emotionally override it. Um, people who are doing things that sabotage themselves all the time. Um, if people have had an underlying infection, even like a dental infection, like a, uh, you know, infected tooth, root canal. The OMT will oftentimes not work if, if it's not indicated. Something else is, is driving the dysfunction or the imbalance. Um, I'll tell you another interesting thing um, that can inhibit OMT effectiveness. By the way, I must say, I'm, I'm going to have to jump off in a few minutes, another five minutes. So um, yeah. I'll finish a few stories that um, there's something called a myofascial strain pattern. And I don't know, it's not taught, and um, perhaps we should go teach at a few schools. Myofascial strain patterns is induced by scars. When a scar heals, it pulls on the fascia and creates a distortion of the fascia. So say for example, a fenestial incision from a C-section, for instance, the incision is, you know, the fenestial is lateral. But when it heals, it pulls vertically like tucking your shirt into your pants too tight, you're going to feel it not at the scar site, but what do you think? Where do you think you're going to feel it? Vertically, above it. Right, shoulders hmm. and neck. And a chronic neck and shoulder pain that you treat gets better or worse, but it doesn't get better and stay better. And there's a scar. That scar could be causing an entire myofascial drag pattern. 
Now, there's certain technique to inject that scar with, with plain lidocaine. No epinephrine, just plain pure procaine or pure lidocaine in the scar. It releases the tension the scar sets up in the body, and the pain relief in the, in the, in the, in the shoulders and neck is instant. It's instant relief. I've done it hundreds of times, maybe thousands. Wow, that's fascinating. And I can definitely see how that would happen. And so if you can treat somebody, it's better. I don't know. It's better, better, better. I don't know. It gets better or worse, better or worse, better or worse. Wait a minute. What's going on? You find a scar. And scars don't always affect it. It's not, not 100% either way. When a scar is affecting it, you can see because the patent person doesn't get well. You should inject the scar. The person gets well. And it, it is, it, it, it's, it's, like, it's like magic. Yeah, I mean, the lidocaine, procaine, marcaine, it kind of dumbs the nerve and resets it, is my understanding. Correct. And hopefully in the fascia, what conducts electromagnetic fields of the body, and procaine or lidocaine inhibit magnetic, electromagnetic conductivity. So you reset that conductivity because the scar is super dense and it has an overconduction. By injecting it with, with the procaine or lidocaine, you reset that electromagnetic conductivity and it's releases the tension in the body. And it's, it's, it's pretty dramatic release. Yeah, that's incredible. Dr. Binyamin, I want to be respectful of your time. I want to end with two questions, if you don't mind. The first question is, what do you want your medical legacy to be? And I'll start with that. I mean, you're semi-retired right now, correct? Correct. My legacy would, would be um, to teach the art of healing. Healing as an art, based upon science and anatomy, physiology, and biochemistry. And the, as you've heard in the stories discussing, to give people a sense and the, and the, and the, and the, the skill set to, to have the art of healing. Okay. And, and do you want to do that through, through teaching, through seminars? I'll, have the, I'll do either one. I see. If, if I had the, given the opportunity, I would come to a school or create a seminar. If I had people, students who wanted to learn this stuff, we make a, make a workshop or a seminar one day or three days, whatever, it doesn't matter, and teach that art. Yeah, so osteopathic OMM chairs listening to this, they should invite you teach the art of healing at their medical school. Yeah. And, and then my final question is specifically geared towards osteopathic medical students, those students who are struggling to find value in OMT. What advice do you have for them? Oh, watch, watch the artists. Watch the artists do it. Just be present. Look, look at the body. Look at the body as, as, as a unit, a functional unit. And you see how it's all put together you get a sense of, of, of um, what the body needs. Most bodies are not deficient in drugs. There's only need drugs. They're necessary sometimes. But you get a sense of watching those who do this well. Just watch them work. Watch the, talk to the patients. Talk to patients. See how they come out, how they do. Call them up afterwards. Ask how, ask how they're feeling, what happened to them in the, in the session. Get feedback. And, uh, and then you get, you get a sense, you begin to see, um, read books uh, on, on osteopathy. There's a philosophy behind it. It's not just a, 
a mechanic, there's a philosophy behind osteopathy. It's great. It's, it's really pretty cool when you look into the, the writings of the great thinkers. The great thing is some really great thinkers out there. Harold Magoon, and then and, and you have uh, Lippincott's, and, and Still, and Sutherland, Sutherland and, and Fulford. You have greats who really understand the art of healing, and they really get it. Um, so just read and ask questions. And be a bit of a nudlik. You know, there's an old saying that the short-tempered can't teach and the bashful can't learn. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. And uh, if there's an opportunity to teach this stuff, I would be happy. Be honored to go someplace and then to set up a, a course. Or actually, I already set the course already established. That that's going to be a place to do it. And... Um, sure. You'll come out an, an artist. Yeah. And do you have any do you have any plugs you would like to make for any of your books? Anything coming up? Um, well, actually, I'll tell you this, I, the book is called Brain Fog and How to Prevent Alzheimer's Dementia. I have you know, minimal cognitive impairment. Um, but uh, what's coming up in the near future, I'm looking at doing a course, an, an online course on uh, doing with children. Raising happy, healthy children. So uh, keep your eyes open for that. Raising oh, happy, really healthy children. Yeah, I should put you in contact with Dr. Christopher Polat, who I work with. He's an OMT doctor, pediatrician trained. Um, he, his whole hobbies outside of medicine are, are geared towards that. Um, yeah, beautiful. I'm, yeah. Um, and then how can people reach you if they have questions? Um, you can, you can uh, my email address is docben. D O C B E N 55 at Gmail. Doc Ben 55 at Gmail. And, um, uh, or if you can call me, my cell is 443-333-6455. Sounds good. Well, I'll put, uh, I'll put your email in the show notes so people Great. can reach out to you. Uh, and thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate okay. it. Thank you for sharing your, your wisdom and all your your years of experience treating patients with with osteopathic medicine. So and, and I appreciate also the work. It's, it's a lot of work putting this thing together. I'm, I'm I'm really impressed that you did this and uh, keep up the good work. This is we need this stuff. It's wonderful. Yeah, thank you. We'll all have right. to have you on again on the podcast in the future. So you have a great evening. You too. God Bye. bless you. Thank you. Bye now. Bye bye. Dr. Rothstein and I touched on a multitude of topics. What is the pulse of life? Fostering inner calm and respect for patients we are treating. The importance of vitamins and electrolytes. Hope you all were able to take away some knowledge from the conversation. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.